0: And Pierce, welcome to the podcast again.
1: Thanks, Julie. Glad to be here again.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. You're the first uh, guest that's been, uh, that's a return guest, actually. So it's kind of a oh, huge cool. pleasure at my end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for people who uh, haven't heard your your initial recording with me, uh, you are a PhD student at McMaster University in astrophysics and astrobiology. So how are things going with that PhD?
1: Pretty good. Just uh, just finishing up now. I uh, got about maybe five more months and then I will defend uh, over Zoom, I'm sure. And, and then I'll move on to, to being a postdoc. So very exciting times.
0: We were talking before we started recording about your postdoc because I was catching up on news uh, in, in your life and uh, you're not Exactly allowed to, to to share the explicit details of that postdoc, but do you want to tell us what um, where, where you'll be moving to essentially?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm very excited uh, that I've accepted a position at uh, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, so I'll be moving moving south.
0: That's pretty big news. That's yeah. pretty big. Um, so, again, for people who, who haven't heard the first recording that we did, you study essentially how life came to be on Earth. Uh, do you want to just give a brief resume just so that, because the way I say it is probably not 100% accurate? So,
1: <laughs> sure, <yeah. laughs> why don't
0: you tell us what you study?
1: Yeah. So, my research is on the origin of biomolecules. Uh, kind of the questions that, I, that I'm trying to answer are, you know, where did uh, where did life get its building blocks? Um, because you, you know the postulate is that uh, if you have the right ingredients, settled in the right environment, that life will emerge just through natural processes like chemistry mixed with some some, uh, some geochemistry and, and physics. Uh, so, so my research is is wondering, you know, how did the building blocks get there, and what were those building blocks? And I've looked at uh, at meteorites as sources in the past um because a certain class of meteorite has a a wide inventory of of different biomolecules like the building blocks of proteins, amino acids, uh the building blocks of DNA and RNA and the building blocks of cell walls and you know and sugars, you know they they have everything. It's pretty they're pretty interesting objects. Um and then lately for my PhD I've been kind of you know working on a little bit of a different hypothesis and focusing on the atmosphere uh, of the early Earth, and trying to figure out what could the atmosphere have made, what kind of biomolecules or precursors to those biomolecules uh, could have made, so that they can uh, rain down directly into um, into ponds, which are kind of these pristine environments for life to emerge, and then uh, and then processes in those ponds carry forward uh, to to uh, produce first life. So that's that's kind of the overview. <laughs>
0: yeah and that's very helpful uh and and i did ask you a whole bunch of questions about the origins of life the last time we spoke so i'm going to try to not be repetitive this time around but one thing that just um popped into my mind when you were talking just now about meteorites Mm -hmm. is that i'm wondering if the meteorites have all these building blocks for life where do the building blocks come like how did they get on the meteorites that's the thing that i don't understand
1: yeah this is uh, this is some of the first research I did actually uh, was trying to figure out how those building blocks got there. Um, so we, we ran models of the interiors of the, uh, the parent bodies of these meteorites, which are essentially asteroids. Um, some could be comets, but just essentially big rocks in space uh, that are, you know, a uh, hundred kilometers in diameter, like really big things. Um, these things are, are large enough that their pressures In their interiors uh, and uh, and temperatures are high enough to have kind of liquid water um, kind of running through you can imagine streams of liquid water running through these big rocks in space and uh, because they're isolated from the external environment they're kind of these amazing places to make biomolecules um there's no, there's not nothing, not much that can destroy them in there. Uh, there's like no UV light can get through all that rock. So they're protected from UV, uh, they're protected from galactic cosmic rays, um, they're protected from the solar wind. So they're kind of this like nice little react reaction environments to make all this cool chemist, all this cool organic chemistry. And it really just happens through, um, through, you know, thermodynamics. Like it's a, it's favorable to make biomolecules in these, at these temperatures and pressures. Um, with these, uh, with these starting, um, molecules, so they, uh, the, the, kind of starting molecules inside these things are things like, they're very small, like hydrogen, cyanide, um, ammonia, uh, methane, water, like just very simple, like molecules with maybe two, three, four atoms. Um, and those are, those are, uh, gathered right from the, what's called the protoplanetary disc or the, the disc of dust and gas that, it's originally around the proto sun uh, as the solar system's forming. So you kind of you kind of build up your your big rocks, and uh, you have these simple components in the inside. And then uh, with this water uh, environment, you kind of can get organic chemistry to start taking place.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask the question that non scientists are probably wondering, which is, how do scientists like yourself know what's inside a big rock if it's out in in outer space?
1: Yeah, that's good. That's a good question. Um, there are different way different types of evidence that we can kind of follow to to figure this out. Uh, Observations are um, paramount to the field of of astrophysics. So looking at uh, with with telescopes at different um, forming star systems that have these protoplanetary disks. Um, For example, Alma which is a radio telescope interferometer in Chile um, can take a look at one of these discs and tell you, uh, you know, based on the types of light that are shining back, you know, what kind of molecules are in that disc. So we can kind of formulate that picture. Uh, so that's the, that's the direct evidence. And, you know, it, it, it as it turns out, a lot of these discs have the similar compositions, you know, these, these simple molecules like water, and ammonia and methane, they seem to be pretty universal because they are, uh, they're like a low energy molecule. Um, you know, if you're, if you, if you're an element just based on the amount of elements that are in the universe, uh, you're most likely to make these things just because they are the simplest lowest energy species out there. So there's also the theoretical side, you know, it's like, we don't expect to see really weird, um, Species showing up in these disks that uh, that maybe have twelve or thirteen atoms attached to them in high abundances, just because it's not the the thermodynamics is shows it's not really favorable to make something that big um, in these disks. But uh, if you try and make water, you know the the theory will tell you, okay, well it's really easy to to attach two hydrogens to an oxygen atom. Uh,
0: Okay, so, so yeah. you're going based on observation but also what you what is like kind of like the rules of physics so to speak. Yeah.
1: That's that's kind of the name of the game in my field is you try to you use observations and experiments and then you um, use present theory that you know and you try and you try and figure out how this stuff's happening and why it's happening using both kind of components, the observation experiments and the theory.
0: So outside of the meteorites that fall to Earth all the time, um, what have we ever drilled into an asteroid? Like, is that something that we've ever done?
1: Drilled into? Uh, okay, I've... maybe not drilled. That
0: maybe well, on in the well, movies. That's, but...
1: that's not too far from the truth, though. That's I mean, that's the that's the that would be the goal. And um, I would say I would I would have be lucky to say yes. But um, the only uh, probe that had a drill component attached to it was the the uh, Philae lander from the Rosetta mission that landed on on Comet sixty seven P, but it uh, it wasn't able to get its harpoon to work, so it it uh, wasn't able to to drill, unfortunately, even though it brought one. Um, so we could have potentially found a lot, a lot of cool stuff because it's really under the surface where all the pristine biomolecules are going to be uh, because UV radiation, cosmic rays can kind of penetrate to certain depths, You know, maybe a few centimeters for UV and maybe a meter for cosmic rays. So you want to be able to get as low as you can. Um, but but uh, scientists have been clever and the new um, the Japanese Space Agency just sent and uh, NASA spent, sent uh, each their own probe to a different asteroid. And they found a way to collect samples, um, in more clever ways. And, and I think the Japanese team was, was probably the most clever in that they, um, they went down, they took a sample from the surface and then they, they sent a, uh, projectile kind of, like they sent off an explosion and had a projectile go down and, and kind of create this crater exposing the subsurface. And then they took a sample of, of that region. So it's, it's kind of like. Maybe the fast way uh, of getting to the subsurface without a drill is just to just to explode it.
0: <laughs> See, I didn't even. I guess you don't really know about this news unless you're in the field, right? Because this hasn't gotten the, all the popularity that the Mars mission has had, for example, right? I mean, I didn't even know. I'm glad I asked the question. Did yeah. they already analyze this sample, or is it on its way back to Earth?
1: It's on its on its way back, and it's arriving. Um, I think. I think one of them is arriving this year. One's arriving next year. So they, they'll they be, yeah, they already know how much, one of them, they already know how much sample they have because they had a camera inside and they can see all these big rock chunks. I think that's the uh, OSIRIS-REx mission. So both are very exciting, yeah.
0: That's super cool. So you must be stoked to, to read all about the results of this.
1: Yeah, it's the, those uh, those results are going to be directly connected to some of the theoretical work that we've done because we have studied... Um, We studied meteorites, and then we and then we did these simulations to figure out the different distributions of biomolecules. So if 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 they measure the biomolecules in these samples, um, and they they kind of get our distributions, then that really bolsters our theory. You know, and that's that's always exciting when you have an experiment or observation which um, kind of proves the theory.
0: Could it also disprove?
1: Yeah, and that would be okay. absolutely fine too, because that means that there's there's something to be learned, um, which actually is almost, in many ways, the uh, the better outcome. Um, you want like you don't always want to just be just get it all right first try because there's nothing really to learn from that process other than this is all true. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it when, wouldn't be
0: uh, as exciting. Yeah. I, I would assume if it, if this actually disproved some of your the, the theories that you've you know come up with is that. That would actually be exciting, I think,
1: yeah, exactly. it's pointing to right. some sort of interesting chemistry or physics or biology that you just didn't expect, and then you um then you got to try and answer why it's there
0: Wow, so are you able to um, get any information from the meteorites that land on earth?
1: oh yeah, yeah, for sure um a specific class of meteorites because there's most meteorites that land on, on earth are not, um, they don't have biomolecules in them. They're of a certain type that they, they might be iron based, um, which you can imagine as the cores of these big asteroids. Um, or they might just be kind of just, just rock with no, no, not a whole lot of carbon uh, content with them, but maybe about 5% of the meteorites that fall, um, are what's called carbon rich meteorites. And then, and these are the ones that, that really could have, um, delivered all the cool biomolecules. So, uh, different labs will get samples of these and they will, they will analyze them for one specific type of biomolecule. Um, It's hard to take a single sample and analyze it for everything because, um, you know, you have to, uh, you have to take that sample and you have to, you have to, uh, try and extract as much bio, uh, my, biomolecule weight as you can. So you have to um, maybe use hydrochloric acid or some sort of thing to, to uh, release the biomolecules from the rock matrix um, and better, different, different types of uh, processes work better for different types of biomolecules. So um, they'll go through and they'll try and look for some certain type of biomolecule, maybe the building blocks of RNA, um, which is one of the more exciting ones that, uh, that I've, I've looked into. And uh, and then they'll yeah they'll they'll record the results, publish them. That's really
0: cool. Uh, still on the um, on the the line of the origins of life here. I saw a news post or news article from NASA. Uh, the title was "New Insights into How Earth Got Its Nitrogen." Have Have you read that that new article?
1: New insights in how Earth got its nitrogen. Uh no. Uh, no I don't think so nothing's kind of nothing's kind of triggering in my mind Um, okay
0: yeah I was just curious because I saw the headline and I was like oh I'm not even going to read this I'm just going to ask Ben about it because one (laughs) of the things no no, seriously because one of the things I'm wondering is when you're in a field like astrophysics and astrobiology how do you keep on top of all of this new information that comes up right I mean I see this headline I'm like new insights I'm like okay like who who um who informs all the other scientists about yeah, this stuff? Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, that's so. This is one that I I definitely will want to read after this because it's it's very relevant to my researches. Um, Looking into the earlier atmosphere and how it got. I mean, it's nitrogen maybe is not as um, not as interesting as things like uh, like water or methane, um, but it's still. Because it's an inert gas, um, it's still it's kind of a source of different nitrogen-containing biomolecules, which is is key.
0: What what does nitrogen like? What role does it play in the building blocks of life?
1: The main uh, the main nitrogen species that's interesting for the origin of life is hydrogen cyanide, which is HCN one hydrogen, one carbon, one nitrogen, and it's kind of the uh, the precursor to almost everything. Um, related to how cells function, Uh, it will react, it will react with different things to make, uh, the building blocks of, of proteins, the building blocks of DNA and RNA and the, uh, that includes the sugars and the nucleobases and and all this stuff. Um, so, so it's getting that hydrogen cyanide and, and in order to do that, you need to take a nitrogen molecule, which is two nitrogen atoms attached and it's a very strong uh, bond because it's a triple bond, and it would rather be in this molecular form rather than single atoms. So you need to be able to split it apart before you can get a nitrogen to make hydrogen cyanide, and and to do that, you need usually ultraviolet light from the sun. So it needs to be high in the atmosphere or lightning, which means you need to be in the troposphere in the lower lower parts. So that's that's pretty much how how it works is. Uh, you 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 have all this inert N two sitting around, and then you you split it apart, and then make cool biomolecules from it.
0: And you need light to do that.
1: Yeah, either light or um, or lightning, I guess. Oh, lightning! Yeah, that's which, so true. Which is it? Which is an int- like which is kind of like <laughs> the process of, of lightning actually splitting apart these things is usually a, a thermal process. So it's you know the uh, the lightning bolt is actually. Um, luminescing because it's it's about um, 30,000 degrees Kelvin so it's really really hot and if you're that hot you can split apart molecules pretty easily Um, so that's kind of yeah it's it's kind of not really intuitive what's actually happening there when you're looking at it you see that light flash you're like why what is that well that's that's just a really hot uh, bit of gas in the atmosphere
0: that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Um, I want to move on to Mars, only because it's in the news right now. It's hot. We talked a little bit about Mars the last time. I want to get your take on it, because I know it's it's really big that they've sent Perseverance mm-hmm. back to Mars. Uh, it's going to collect soil samples. Yeah, It's going to be the first time, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot so, of exciting stuff.
0: What uh, do you hope that, that they might uncover?
1: I think the there's there's so much cool about that rover, um, so many cool things related to my research and not related that I still find interesting from a um, from kind of like a p- potential future human settlement standpoint. But because uh, I'm you know I'm also a big space exploration geek and and I, mm-hmm. I like I like the idea of potentially like living on Mars someday. Um, which you know as crazy as it sounds i don't know people can dream
0: <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs>
1: but uh for, in terms of the science uh starting with the science there's uh there's a instrument called Sherlock on perseverance which is a uh what's called a Raman spectrometer and you essentially has a laser uh, ultraviolet laser that it shoots at different samples and then um gets those samples to the molecules in that sample to fluoresce and based on whatever it sees um in, in collecting that uh, fluorescence, it, there's some sort of uh, fingerprint essentially in there, which will tell you what kind of different molecules are are, are present. So, what it could find, and, and uh, based on where it, uh, the landing site is, a really high, uh, you know, high high chance is uh, is different of these these different biomolecules that uh, that are the building blocks of life essentially, and they could be essentially either from from life, so. They could be there could be living microbes on Mars and they could just be, um, you know, taking a look at the, at the actual organisms or they could be extinct life. So it could just be, um, you know, the, the vestiges uh, of, of past life. You wouldn't really be able to tell with this instrument, unfortunately, um, whether it was living today or extinct. But, you know, both are both are interesting. So <laughs> could
0: they potentially find things like diatom fossils?
1: Yeah, actually, um, the, there's 23 cameras on, on board Perseverance. And the most, uh, the highly, highest resolution camera is 20 megapixels, uh, which is, you know, I think on Curiosity, the highest resolution camera is about 2 megapixels. And if you look at your camera, um, if you have a new camera, that's probably somewhere like 12 megapixels. So this is a pretty high resolution camera. And it's also got um micro microscope cameras as well so the the highest chance of finding a a diatom fossil would be in this sample collection uh process where it's going to be digging cores and then the microscope cameras attached to the uh the end of that mast that's uh, uh that took the core so it'll it'll be able to look you know high resolution zoomed in to try and see is there any kind of fossil evidence of fossils there so that's you know, that's possible. It's uh yeah, that would I get be,
0: shivers just yeah. <laughs> thinking about it.
1: <laughs> that would be a pretty advanced form of life to find um but would be like obviously like huge uh if something of that magnitude happened. Um Yeah,
0: because isn't this site a site that they think there were there used to be a lake there?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Jezreel crater filled with water. Um so High chance of if if life formed on Mars that it there would be some sort of clues here in this location.
0: Yeah. Um, what are your perhaps personal thoughts on that? Do you think that there was potentially life on Mars?
1: I I think that there's I think that there's a there's a probably a hundred percent chance that that life Earth life. Um, from some, uh, asteroid collision on, on earth kind of got transported to Mars. Uh, so that, so, so I think that there's definitely, and actually with, even with the rovers, (laughs) which is kind of funny, um, it's impossible to sterilize these things to, to, you know, the nth degree. So we've, I feel like we've definitely brought life. Um, so, but that's kind of like a, you know, uh. That's an yeah, aside.
0: we we talked about that last time where, <laughs> when we were talking about tardigrades on Mars and, and right. we were like, oh, well, the chances are pretty high that we'll end up introducing tardigrades on yeah. Mars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. I watched it live. First of all, the fact that we could even watch this thing happening. I know it wasn't like actually live. I know there's like an yeah. 11 minute delay or something. Yeah. But the fact that we could see and we can still see images being broadcasted from Mars is... I mean, it is my, I can't believe I'm living in that, in this era.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, I'm so glad they did that because it's, it's so hard to visualize. I mean, for me, for me, especially, actually, I I have sometimes difficulty visualizing things on my own. Like I, I prefer, I need that kind of visual um, aspect in order to, to help me like figure out what's going on. So seeing the, uh, seeing the sky crane, seeing the parachute, seeing this thing kind of being dropped down on the surface, it was like, remarkable. Like, I, I, it makes you really wonder, like, like this, like, I, you start to think to yourself, like, this was the plan? This seems crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. how, how was this the plan that they, they finished on? Because <laughs> it's because so much had to go right and, and it all it all seemed to work perfectly.
0: And the testing, I was I was watching videos of how they tested Ingenuity, the the little helicopter that's mm-hmm. that's on Mars as well, because it's the first time that we we fly something uh, like a helicopter on a planet. Um, and I was watching the testing, you know, the, the the QA they were doing on on that helicopter to make sure that it could actually work. Yeah. Um, I haven't stayed on top of the news. I don't know if they were able to launch it or not.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the about Ingenuity yet. Uh, I haven't seen it uh, photos yeah. from it yet.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool, anyway. So I've, I definitely wanted to bring it up, and especially for you, in your case, I think whatever they discover in the soil samples is going to be very pertinent to your research. I imagine.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to be looking for for the building blocks of DNA and RNA and of, of proteins, and you know what are their distributions, um, because that's the other thing is that you need to be able to say this wasn't delivered by meteorites. This was this is evidence of life. In order to do that, you need to. You know know what the distributions of these things in life are versus the distributions in meteorites uh, that's why meteorites are so are so valuable is because um because they have we like there here is evidence of how uh chemistry would give us these things um but but in life it's completely different like for instance proteins uh, are made up of all left-handed amino acids Uh, But meteorites have both left-handed and right-handed amino acids in in more or less equal distributions because chemistry doesn't care whether it's left or right-handed, it's just going to make, it's going to make these things equally. But life cares a lot. Uh, Life needs things all to be one, uh, it's called chirality, it needs to be all left-handed or all right-handed. So, um, you know, looking at those kind of signatures is going to be key to figuring out, okay, this is actually evidence of life and not just of some uh, organics delivered by meteorites.
0: Oh, I see, I see. And I guess, I mean, if the organics were delivered by meteorites, does it really matter? I mean, if if the original life was created by meteorites, but it lived on Mars, does it really matter?
1: Uh, I mean, it's it would be exciting because it would be evidence that this scenario that could have happened on the early Earth also could have happened on early Mars, but what what you really want to find is some sort of smoking gun for. For life, you want something that's pretty that's clear evidence uh, that that life was there or life is there and there's there's ways to do that with with the uh, instrument with the Sherlock instrument, um, but they have to you know they have to have the right sample. Um, they have to sample the right place where there is life, or, or where there once was life so that's that's been protected somewhat from degradation uh, because there's a, you know strong ultraviolet light on Mars. There's galactic cosmic rays, so you want to choose your location wisely. And it would be it would be you know awesome for a geologist uh, or or a geo uh, geochemist to go there and and like find these niche environments and and uh, take a bunch of samples. But uh, these rovers are really uh, are really valuable at, at, at doing that without us having to send a human there.
0: <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Uh, the last time we spoke, we didn't have enough time to speak about Venus. Oh yeah. And about the news that came out of there. And that was pretty big as well. I think it's been overshadowed by all the stuff on Mars, yeah. uh, which is why I wanted to bring it up anyway, but, uh, Venus is a big deal. There's, um, I think rumors of water or something. Do you want to touch on that for a minute here?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the the big phosphine debate kind of was was super uh, super topical for the last. I mean, I, I would say it's now gotten to a point where it's kind of like you say, like kind of trickled out of the news a little bit. But without without a, a perfect resolution, but there was a period of time. Um, I would say probably in, in uh, October, November, December uh, of last year, where it was in like there was a new paper coming out daily about like analyzing these, these uh, observations in a different way, Um, you know, continuing this debate on whether it was actually a signal or not, Um, you know, scrutinizing the models. It it was, uh, and it, and it got, uh, you know, it got a little bit catty too. Like, like some things, some people said some things that that sent people, um, you know, off, off on, uh, you know, yeah. So anyway, the the, the just is that uh, uh, this detection came out of phosphine, which is you know a phosphorous uh, atom attached to three hydrogen atoms. And it's not a particularly well-known species, not really talked about a lot, but it is made by certain organisms, microorganisms on Earth. And uh, it's not really produced any other way other than on Earth, at least by other than by life. Um, so they, what they did is they took, uh, they found this, uh, they, they took two different telescopes, James Clerk Maxwell telescope and the Alma telescope. And they, they observed Venus's atmosphere and they found the signal using both telescopes and the, the James Clerk Maxwell telescope observation looked okay, but you know, it was kind of weak. And then the Alma one, which is like, you know, 60 six antennae, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's essentially working like a 15 kilometer size telescope because it's, uh, it's got like all these different dishes at different distances gets this excellent. What, I mean, I'm not an observer, but to me, this, the signal looked amazing. It was just so clear. Um, so, so strong. And, uh, and then they ran some models to try and figure out, okay, well, what kind of abundance of is this? And they, they kind of settled on 20 parts per billion. And then they, they looked at the chemistry and they said, OK, well, there's, there's actually no way that chemistry could make this amount of phosphine. And there's no way that the physics of the atmosphere, the mixing and stuff could could make it could build it up either. So what if we put in an unknown source of phosphine at about 50 kilometers up in the in the atmosphere and then rerun our models? Oh, now we can get this signal. So now we you know, now this unknown source is kind of this this evidence that you know, one of the things that could be is life. So that was really exciting but then in the process of science it's like now you need now the scrutiny starts and it seems like it was just piled on uh, for the next two months onto this team Uh, in some ways in in at least a couple ways a little bit unfairly too uh, just in the language that they were using but uh, they essentially were scrutinizing the detection itself and uh, the way that you um, process the data and this is where you know, it's really hard to explain. And I'm no observer, so I can't really ex- do it justice. But essentially, you've got to fit your data sample, or your, your data that you get, you got to fit it to try and um, pull the signal out of the noise. And in doing so, you may be introducing a signal that wasn't there in the first place. Uh, but the team since then has come back, reanalyzed, and um, is doubling down that you know this is an actual signal, not a result of processing. Um, so, you know, we don't know uh, the that more observations are needed, I suppose, because you know it's still very interesting um what's going on, whether or not it's it's true, but uh,
0: so just to recap, see. then essentially, what you're saying is that there's a signal of phosphine, not water, it's phosphine yeah.
1: phosphine, yeah. and
0: phosphine is something that is usually created by life on earth mm-hmm. uh, that that we know of. So we don't know what's actually creating this uh, potential signal of, of phosphine on Venus.
1: Yeah, and there's no known chemistry which could make it. That, and Whoa. I say I emphasize known because actually we don't know enough about phosphine yet, which is uh, which is actually really exciting because it's. Um, I even wrote a proposal actually for one of my postdoc applications <laughs> uh, to try and uh, uncover all this unknown phosphine chemistry. Uh, to rerun the models and see, okay, is it actually just is it just unknown chemistry? Um, but I, you know, I, w- I mean, it's important research to do. But I don't know if that would have turned up if with any different results than than the initial models.
0: Right. So, I mean, again, this is a, a, an area that I don't know a lot about. I mean, it seems to me like uh, what you're, what you, what you guys do is a little bit of physics, but it's also a lot of chemistry.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird, actually? So I, I, I probably, I call myself an astrobiologist and astrophysicist, but probably the majority of my work is chemistry. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's just the nature of, I mean, astrobiology, there is, there is there, we haven't found any life beyond Earth yet. So there's no, um, there's no life to analyze. So it's really more focused on chemistry and how to make life using, getting from that transition of chemistry into biology uh, and figuring that process out. Uh, and looking for the kind of chemicals that life makes. So it's, it is it is really more about chemistry.
0: Yeah, and I'm really curious, again, about this whole phosphine situation. So do we just kind of um, keep analyzing it, keep observing it, and see if we keep noticing it? Um, how come we never saw it before is another thing that I'm really curious about. Because So let, let's touch on that one. Is it because our telescopes are just so much better now that this is the reason why we we're spotting it now, perhaps?
1: I think there's a few things. One thing is that you you have to be looking for it. Um, so the, the signal will come at a very specific wavelength, and very specific telescopes can observe at that wavelength. Um, so you you have to, um, and this is the this is the interesting thing actually is that they after this detection they went back some old data uh, from a from a orbiter um, that did some mass spectrometry and they. They were like, oh, did we actually, is this signal in here too? So sometimes you're just not looking for it. So you don't, you don't find it because you're not looking. But another other, in other cases you, uh.
0: Hold up. I want to know, did, did they find the signal in that? Uh,
1: I think they, they were able to put upper limits on the amount that was there, but they, they didn't have a, uh, like a strong, looking d- for strong it. detection. Yeah. In oh, okay. the, in the okay. old data. Yeah. Um, So they, uh, what was I saying? So they.
0: um... We just talked about the orbiter. That's and you you just mentioned it kind of in passing, and I had to I had to (laughs) stop you there because I needed to know.
1: (laughs) That is that is completely fair. (laughs) Uh, Oh yeah. So so why so why didn't they find it before? Um, The other case is is like you say is that um, you know these telescopes like Alma uh, just went into commission in like 2012, pretty much. Um, and, you know, it's first, a lot of its first kind of targets to look at weren't Venus, you know, it wasn't our next neighbor because it could go so much further and see all so much cool stuff. So all these telescope proposals have to go through and then eventually the one that looks at Venus gets accepted. And then they look at Venus and then they, you know, they're like, what can, what molecules can we look for? And if phosphine's one, then that, then they're going to attempt to uh, pull that signal out of the data. So I actually I think the way it happened um, was that they they using this James Clerk Maxwell telescope they found the signal and they used that as um, kind of leverage in their proposal to to use Alma to try and find the same signal so it's kind of the unfortunate process sometimes in in observational um, science which is is key it's important that there's these competitions for telescope time but uh, you know, unfortunately, it could take years before you're actually able to observe the thing you want with the telescope you want.
0: <laughs> it's got to be frustrating to be that what that one or, or scientist or that team of scientists that's like, "Oh my God, we might have life on Venus." Yeah, you know and to have to wait and and to have to wait and, yeah. and, to have, to wait, and to have to wait. And meanwhile, all the attention is going on perseverance right now. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. they're like, yes, but Venus. Yeah, so exactly. so I have to ask you a question about your field in general, which is, what are some common uh disagreements within the field like what are some things that that you guys don't always agree on
1: yeah there's a there's a lot um probably the biggest one in my direct field is the the site of the emergence of life and uh i think we maybe talked uh, touched on this a little bit last time um it's this kind of warm little ponds versus hydrothermal vents Right. Uh, so this is a very common uh, debate that's still still emerging, and we still talk about it at conferences. There's still people on both sides doing great research, and it's it's really good for our field to have this kind of um, conflicting hypothesis driving research, because uh, you know as long as everyone's respectful, which in in, in most cases is is, is the case, um, you know we're both learning from each other a lot. You know one hypothesis kind of pulls ahead, and they're like, oh, well, we can do this, and then the other is like, oh, well we can do this, and then uh, eventually one of them is going to uh, is going to surpass the other in, in terms of evidence there's going to be some kind of barrier that one can't overcome and then uh, and then the, and then the field will drive more research towards the the one the winning hypothesis and then I'm sure it'll then split into two in some way again you know it, right. they'll, they'll find a way to have have uh, uh, contesting parts to it
0: What's been your experience with Canadian research? I know that in, in the United States, there's SpaceX, there's NASA. We talked a little bit about um, the, the potential, potential jobs in the United States. But now I'm really curious about the Canadian uh, space research, Canadian research into um, past life, things like that. Uh, are there areas that you think uh, need to be improved, perhaps?
1: It's, the field in Canada is, is pretty small. Um, I'd say like we have a, a, what we call the Canadian astrobiology network, and there's probably about, um, two dozen at the most, um, professors and postdocs and students who, who do, uh, origins of life or astrobiology research. And sometimes we meet, you know, there's the, there's the, there was the, uh, uh, Canadian workshop Canadian Space Exploration Workshop in 2016, where we all came together and um, wrote these reports for the Canadian Space Agency, trying to tell them, you know, here would be the coolest science that Canada, Canada could do. Um, and, you know, with the budget that, that Canada has, you know, we generally don't do missions on our own. We usually take on to another uh, another science mission. So, you know, we'll, we'll put one instrument on a mission to a, to a, a planet or a, a moon rather than you know, drive the whole thing, just because we're too small, we, you know, we don't have enough funding to do that all on our own. But it's important that we get together and say, okay, well, what do we all want to do? And we'll talk to the astrobiologists, we'll talk to the geologists, we'll talk to, you know, uh, astronomers and all these different groups and and try and find the coolest targets. Um, So, you know, one that came up in that meeting was uh, a lot was Enceladus, Saturn's moon, which has... Uh, geysers um, that kind of expel a bunch of uh, stuff from the interior, and it's got a a subsurface ocean. So this is kind of giving us free access to the subsurface. And everyone agrees you want to go into the subsurface because that's where the pristine stuff is. That's where if life exists, it'll be surviving. Um, So if you have these geysers shooting its insides out into space, we could just take a space probe and fly through it and collect all that stuff and then analyze it and see, is there evidence of life here? Um, at least that's what we want on the astrobiology side are interested in. And then the geologists will be like, okay, what rocks are here? You know, What can we say about the, the tectonic processes and stuff like that?
0: That sounds, I didn't know about Saturn's moon. Mm-hmm. So it's got geysers and it's got an ocean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Subsurface. Uh, so it's got, you know, something like maybe ten kilometers of ice, uh, and then below that, it will have um, it will have a liquid water ocean, and then below that, it actually has. And this is what's what's so interesting about Enceladus, because you may have heard about Europa, Jupiter's moon, which also has yeah. a subsurface ocean, but the kind of distinguishing difference is we have evidence with Saturn's moon Enceladus that there is water rock interaction. A process known as serpentinization, which uh, expels hydrogen gas, uh, and they've measured this hydrogen gas coming from the kind of the cracks on the surface. So it's so the water rock interaction is kind of critical for the hydrothermal vent um, hypothesis because you need you need your uh, you need your vent to be in direct contact with the the water. And there's just there's no evidence at this stage for in Europa having the same contact.
0: So could Canada feasibly afford to send their own probe to Saturn's moon?
1: Not on our own. Um, But if there was a push, NASA, for example, if there was a push to go to Enceladus, say, um, Canada could uh, put money into an instrument to, say, analyze organics from the geyser. Um, One thing, you know, we kind of work within our areas of expertise and, and, uh, there's a lot of great people who, who did, like uh, for OSIRIS-REx, I, I believe the, the laser radar, um, which was basically crucial for the thing not crashing into the asteroid <laughs> and uh, you know, knowing how close it was to the surface so that it could grab the sample, was developed by Canadian, uh, Canadian scientists. Um, so you know, we, have, we have kind of a history of certain instruments that we, uh, that we do and as a result, actually, Canada now gets some of the sample that's going to be returned from from that asteroid. It's kind of Ooh. like you know, you put in the money for the instrument, um, then we're going to give you some of the sample. So, so scientists and labs in Canada will be analyzing some of that. Um,
0: okay, so that would go to government labs, right?
1: Uh, it'll go to specific researchers who kind of kind of signed up on the. Uh, uh, on the team at the, at the stage when they were developing all this. And they've kind of been key throughout the entire design process and, um, on and everything from the get-go. So it's, I guess it's been long known which labs are going to get, get some sample. Right wow. Now.
0: It's so, I mean, it's amazing to me. Every time I, you know, I, I, I speak to a few scientists, I mean, obviously for this podcast, but, speaking with you, you're the only one I've spoken to really about space. Um, so I'm, I'm always learning new things, especially about exoplanets and, and, and moons and, and, you know, life, the, the origins of life and all that stuff. And, and I'm, I'm like, I want to send robots out right now. I don't know how <laughs> you guys, I, I honestly do not know how you guys uh, keep being so patient.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I agree. Like, one of the most exciting missions that I'm looking forward to is the Dragonfly um, going to Titan, Saturn's moon, and that's not going to happen. So that's that just got awarded. It's kind of final round of funding, uh, and I believe it's not going to be launching until 2040s. <laughs> really, <laughs> so can, I
0: thought it was sooner than that.
1: It it may be like the late 2030s, but it's there's like it's still quite a while. Um, so you start to think like, oh man, like where am I going to be in my career at that time? You know, like, is it too early to do kind of preliminary research for this? You know, should I focus on something like Mars where there's going to be results coming out in the next in the next decade? Uh, so, yeah, it's it's really hard. But, um, but yeah, these are long. This is a long process and these are long missions. I just hope that, like, maybe our, our astronaut program um, advances fast enough that uh, humans may, you know, get to get to some of these places soon and, and uh, do some of the science without the uh, necessity for space probes, but maybe that's maybe that's a little bit far away.
0: Do you think it's really that far away that we'll be going to Mars, for example?
1: Uh, I, th- I think I think the moon is going to totally happen this decade, hundred uh, percent. Mm-hmm. And then with Mars, um, because there's so many different initiatives that are interested in going to the moon right now. There's so much money being thrown into that um, plan. And uh, it's going really well, actually. All the, all the uh, testing of the different uh, the different spacecraft and different rockets. There's there's many companies working on that. Um, on the Mars front, there's uh, you know it's it's kind of like okay, well if the Mar- if the Moon phase goes well, then yeah, it could happen um, as well later in the in the decade or maybe the the following decade. And I, I always am the eternal optimist about about this because I I love the idea of, of exploring, um, of human exploration of space. Um, so, I, you know, if you ask me, I'm going to say yes. Uh, <laughs> but that's just also my personality. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, we have, I mean, obviously, we've studied, we, we've, uh, we've gotten samples back from the moon. Uh, did we, I mean, I, I haven't really read up on that because this happened before my time, obviously, but the, the samples that we got from the moon, were there, was there any information in there in regards to the origins of life?
1: Uh, no, I don't believe so. I mean, there, the, one of the coolest things from the lunar samples was, that's actually been really relevant to my research is, uh, figuring out what the rate of meteorite bombardment was, uh, at the time of the origin of life. And, uh, this kind of tells you like, okay, what, how many of, how many ponds on the surface are being seeded with meteorites? Uh, well, you need to know you need to know the rate at the the rate at which asteroids are are, are hitting the Earth, and uh, it was much higher at that stage because there was just a lot more. You know, as the solar system was forming, there was a lot more debris everywhere, and then eventually, you know, with all the with all the forming of the planets, this debris kind of got swept up and um, either kind of collided with planets or the star or kind of ejected out of the solar system. So we've been in this process of cleaning up our solar system for billions of years. Back then it was just a mess. Um, so, you know, asteroids were bombarding the surface at a rate, uh, kind of a hundred million to a hundred billion times what it is today. You know, today we, we hardly notice when a, when a meteorite enters the atmosphere, but back then it would have been like finished everywhere. (laughs) Uh, so that's from the lunar, from the lunar, um, samples, they, they measured the the ages of the largest uh, craters, the largest basins, and because large things impact less frequently, um, you you can kind of tell um, at what rate you know different sizes of these things impacted at at, at those at those dates in which, and, and the idea is that like the the moon is kind of a pristine sample of the craters. Because not, there's no tectonics, there's nothing removing these craters on the moon. So um, you're looking at a, a good uh, historical image of what the bombardment was on the Earth. Um, if the Earth didn't have tectonics or life or anything, those craters would still be there. And we could just look at ourselves. But lucky for us, we have this moon uh, moon to look at.
0: It's funny because I'm originally from Sudbury, right? Which oh, yeah. uh, I, is like the site of a m- massive crater, right? I mean, yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why it's so full of nickel. Yeah. It, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, no, I'm not geologist, yeah. but I yeah. think that's it, right? Yeah,
1: that's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Sudbury yeah, it's, crater it's, is it's, one of the coolest ones. It's uh, <laughs> it's so it's so old too. I think it's a uh, you know something like hundred no maybe a hundred million years old or it could be a billion even it's um it's it's so old that the tectonics have stretched the crater into an ellipse um because all craters are are you know circles they're all like symmetrical uh because it's essentially an explosion in the ground and explosions are uniform you know they don't care they don't have a specific direction that they like to explode it's just everywhere so the fact that it's oval is is evidence that it's been so long that tectonics have just kind of stretched out that crater.
0: <laughs> I didn't know that. I'm actually I'm actually making a note right now to tell my friends <laughs> in Sudbury because I actually didn't know that about my hometown. Uh, that's really unique. And it is a uh, you know it's uh, if you've if anybody's ever been to Sudbury, you'll know uh, that it has it was a crater because it's all rock. I mean, it is literally all black rock. You know, yeah. it's this yeah. amazing. I mean, they've planted a lot of trees in the past decade or so. I mean, it's a completely different landscape, but it is very unique what the uh, craters have done to to the Earth's surface. Um, mm-hmm. Staying on Earth on on ex- space exploration, so you're excited about. I think they're they're building a, a base on the moon, right? I mean, I think that's what they're planning to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's is the, an actual base. That's the plan. I know. Um... I know the chinese space agency is is uh is pushing forward on the on the base module um they're doing like a lot of different um lunar module designs right now the the thing that canada's involved with which is really exciting is the lunar gateway uh space station which will be orbiting the moon and it's kind of like the gateway to deep space so if you want to go to mars you first go to your to the lunar gateway and then And then you ship out from there. So it's kind of like a shipping off point.
0: Like a docking station?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, (laughs) all right, we're
1: going to go to deep space. So we got to go to our docking station first and fuel up or whatever. And yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, Do you feel sometimes like you're essentially living all the sci-fi shows that you used to watch on TV?
1: Yeah, for sure. But it just doesn't happen fast enough for my liking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're in what age range are you in?
1: I'm in my my mid 30s.
0: You're mid 30s. Okay, so you're still young enough to see, like, potentially in the next 50 years, what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I hope so. I certainly hope so. Hope to be involved. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: and and that's the other thing is is the fact that you have both feet inside this field. You know, you can really not just observe from a kind of geeky point of view, Mm -hmm. but also uh, be involved in it. So, uh, what are you allowed to tell us what you'll be working on at Johns Hopkins?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, in in general, um, so the cool thing about this position, and this was kind of really important to me, uh, was that I take a position that ha- has an experimental aspect to it, um, because a lot of my work has been theoretical uh, research up until now, and I love theory, you know. But in my mind, you need you can't you can't use theory to prove something exclusively. You need your, you need experimental data, and we, you know, we use experimental data that we don't collect ourselves. But I would really love to do the experiments, collect the the evidence that I could then use in um, unison with theory to to really make some progress on on some uh, origins of life uh, hypotheses. So I'm going to be doing experiments, which is a uh, uh, you know not brand new to me, but definitely a new exciting endeavor, and and um, it's going to keep me, it's going to keep me super passionate and super driven, which was, which is why I really needed this is, um, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that I really love learning and doing new things. And if I was doing just theory for, for instance, uh, which was a, a couple other offers that I got, um, I probably wouldn't be as, as stoked as, as this case where I now, I now get to uh, breach into this new experimental t- territory. Do different uh, atmospheric uh, experiments, you, you know, using actual ultraviolet light uh, in a chamber with different gases to try and make uh, biomolecule precursors like hydrogen cyanide, like we were talking about, and then you know, raining these down into uh, into little like ponds, you know, uh, experimental ponds, so that I can try and make more complex biomolecules that way. So it's really taking the theory I've been working on forever, and then and then doing experiments.
0: That sounds so cool. I I'm, I'm I wish I could be a fly on the wall, to be honest with you. Like when you're doing these experiments, uh, are you going to be able, do you think, to share videos and photos while you're doing these experiments? Is that is that something that John Hopkins, for example, um, is big on in terms of, you know, sci comms, uh, science communication?
1: I think that that's more to do with the personal scientist um, because there's no, like, there's no rule against, uh, you know, sharing like sharing your research journey um through social media or whatever and i i'm definitely someone who likes to who likes to do that who likes to do science communication and and share what i'm going through at some at some aspect you you know there's there's only so much you want to share because you want to you know save your exciting discoveries and you know give it give give yourself time to analyze your own data before sharing it but uh but certainly certainly pictures of what you're doing like that's that's uh, that's super safe and super um, super fun to do. You know, like if you have a picture of your chamber, um, or or uh, you know, you show yourself kind of going through the process of running a gel or um, or analyzing your your data. So yeah, I I'll definitely do some of that for sure, and I I don't see any anyone having issues with that.
0: Please do. I really want you to uh, <laughs> share a picture of that, at least a, a couple of pictures of the chambers. I'm really curious to see what that looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, listen, Ben. It's been a pleasure having you again on the uh, on the show. Um, we definitely finally talked about Venus, uh, <laughs> which is something I really, really wanted to talk about because it's. Uh, I'm definitely, I think, going to set up like a news alert or something for any news that's coming out of Venus. And uh, yeah, that's a good can you tell idea. people, yeah, definitely. Can you tell people uh, how they can follow you on Twitter?
1: Yeah, my uh, my Twitter handle is astrobio underscore Ben. Um, so you can check me out there and that's, that's probably where I, I do the most updating of kind of the science I'm doing or the cool science of other people that I want to, um, amplify, um, what's going on in my life. And then, um, also my website, uh, which is www.benkdpierce.com, which is spelled P E A R C.
0: I was just about to spell it for you. (laughs) Anyway, thanks again for coming and uh, good luck at uh, John Hopkins.
1: Thanks so much, Julie.